Welcome to the Faithful Forebears, a podcast about faithful Christian men and women throughout history. Episode 14, John Wycliffe. Trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on his sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. John Wycliffe. Welcome back. Today we're going to be staying in the same era as Machaut and Christine de Pizan, but we're going to meet John Wycliffe. Now it's very possible you've heard of Wycliffe before. He's pretty famous. Sometimes he's called the Morning Star of the Reformation. Now, the big R Reformation isn't going to happen for another 150 years. We're still in the 1300s. Martin Luther isn't going to nail anything to any doors until 1517. But as we'll see, Wycliffe had many ideas that influenced a lot of those reformers. And I do want to say, while that time is known as the Reformation, the church has always been in need of reformation. And there have always been people trying to clean up the abuses and problems of the church, just like there's always been those trying to take advantage of those problems. For instance, in episode 6, Cyril and Methodius were trying to reform how missions worked. And in the 1200s, St. Francis, in episode 10, was trying to reform monasticism. Reformation, in the little r general sense, has always been happening, and will always be happening in the church. In that sense, Wycliffe is just another person attempting to fix the problems he sees. Now, if you agree with him or not, well, that's another story. And that probably depends on if you were a Protestant or a Catholic. But let's dive in. So John was born in 1330, and as usual, we need to see what's going on in the world around him. As mentioned before with both Machaut and Christine, the 1300s can be considered a disaster for a lot of different reasons. On the geopolitical side, the Hundred Years' War was wreaking havoc across Europe, especially France, and draining all the money of England and France. And this drain of money was leading to serious economic problems in both countries. To make matters worse, the Black Death hit Europe in 1348, killing roughly a third of the population. There was also a little ice age, which caused crop failure and famine. And lastly, growing cities and changing economies meant that the system of feudalism and serfdom was breaking down, and no one really knew what to do about it. Now these were all serious issues, but the problem we'll be dealing with most in this episode had to do with the church. Particularly, it had to do with the papacy. Throughout the Middle Ages, there were some good popes and some bad popes. There were some who followed the great example of Gregory the Great from episode 1. But there were also some who had a lot of, air quote, nephews. And this was code for sons, but since they were officially celibate, they couldn't just call them sons. There were some popes who were energetic and competent but there were also some who were passive and incompetent. And sadly, in the 1300s, it started to be more and more of those with the negative attributes instead of the positives. So let's review. During the Middle Ages, the Pope was not only the head of the church, but also the secular ruler of central Italy, a place called the Papal States. And it was this case ever since our friend Gregory. So the Pope was a ruler, at least there, very much like a king which meant they often had political aims, just like other kings. But the popes also controlled the church, an incredibly powerful force across Europe. So if the popes wanted to, 
they could cause serious problems for other secular rulers. For instance, let's take the Holy Roman Emperor. Remember, that's the guy who rules roughly modern-day Germany. If that Holy Roman Emperor ever did something the Pope did not like, the Pope could declare him excommunicated and order all the priests in that land to stop performing baptisms and communion and other sacraments. Well, that's something that the German people would take very seriously, and they might pressure the emperor to change or to give in to the pope over whatever they disagreed on. Well, that exact thing happened multiple times in the Middle Ages. And similarly, since the pope was a secular ruler, sometimes those holy Roman emperors would just march down to Italy, capture Rome, and make the pope do whatever they told him to do. And that also happened several times. And to make matters worse, things like this did not just happen with Germany. For instance, the popes would try to often play France against Germany, or England against France, or Germany against England. And it made a serious mess. And it showed that the papacy was all too often being used for less than divine purposes. And also, since the pope was a political ruler, he had to deal with the people of Rome itself. And sometimes the people of Rome wanted a particular thing in a ruler, and didn't really care about the spiritual duties of the Pope. Powerful Italian families often hoped that they could control the papacy for their own goals and interests against their rivals. Confused yet? Well, keep up with me for a little bit more. So this led to even more complications when the time would come to pick a new Pope. So remember, when a Pope dies, a new Pope is chosen from and by a group of people called Cardinals. But each one of these cardinals would always have their own goals, often based on where each cardinal was from. So a cardinal from Rome would want things that would benefit Rome, and maybe their own families. And a French cardinal would hope for things that would benefit France, and Germans for Germany, and so on. And this meant that most real effort of fixing the church got lost in political struggles. Insert your own joke about modern politics here. In the early 1300s, thanks to some pretty shady events, the French cardinals began to get their way. And in 1309, a pope decided to just live in France instead of going to Rome, in a city called Avignon. And the popes after him continued this trend, and before long, several popes never even visited Rome once while they were pope. This period became known as the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. And all of these popes were very partisan in favor of the French against all the other Roman powers. And this meant that the papacy was not very popular in places like England and Germany, the major rivals of France. But then things got even worse. But for a moment they looked like they would get better. A woman named Catherine of Siena finally convinced a pope, Gregory IX, to return to Rome. And Catherine's story is very cool in its own right, and maybe someday she will get her own episode. But while things looked good for a little bit, they didn't last. After Gregory IX died... There was chaos as to who should be elected next. While the cardinals were in Rome, a mob basically forced them to pick an Italian pope, Urban VI. But this pope ended up being way too intense, so many of the cardinals fled Rome and then elected a different pope, because they didn't like the first guy. This other pope was Clement VII. But now there's a big problem. There were now two popes in Europe both elected by the same group of cardinals. This period becomes known as the Great Western Schism, because the big question is, which one of these popes is legitimate? And basically, the different powers of Europe lined up behind whichever pope suited their needs better. 
and usually that just meant going for whoever their enemy didn't want. So since France sided with Clement, England decided they would side with Urban. And since England sided with Urban, Scotland decided they would side with Clement. And now everyone wondered, who has the authority to make popes and unmake popes? And who has the authority to judge between which pope is the true pope? Basically, it was a mess. And we will deal with this a lot more in future episodes. And don't worry, we'll review when we get there. Okay, so that was a lot. But it is important. But let's get back to John. So John was born in England in or around 1330. And this was back when there was still a single pope, but the popes were living in France. So we don't know much about John's early life, but he was born to fairly wealthy parents. Sometime before 1345, he began studying at the University of Oxford. Now, universities continued to become bigger and more popular during the 1300s. The premier university in Europe was the University of Paris, but Oxford was becoming a close second. Oxford's famous scholars now included people such as Dun Scotus and William Ockham, and that's the same Ockham who's famous for Ockham's razor. At Oxford, John received an excellent education, and it was here that he began to read works that would greatly affect him for the rest of his life. Now, very early on, John's intelligence was recognized, though apparently not his wit or his humor, because apparently he didn't have much of either. He was not known as a fun guy, so don't be expecting any clever jokes in John's writing, like Rosfeth or the stylish writing of Christine. But while John might have been lacking in that department, he was unflinching in his logic. His first published work, in fact, is simply called Logic, and his second book is creatively called Logic Continued. As I mentioned, wit isn't his strong suit. But these works dealt with Aristotle and other great philosophers, including the Arabic commentators of Aristotle, Erevos and Avicenna, plus great Christian philosophers, like Augustine of Hippo and our old friend Anselm of Canterbury from episode 7. But during this time, Wycliffe primarily saw his role as scholar in defending realism from nominalism. Okay, now what the heck does that mean? So this gets into some pretty dense philosophy, so I'll try to make it as simple as possible. Realism and nominalism were two major schools of philosophical thought. Basically, realism believed that there were real categories for things. For instance, a dog and a cat are really animals because they share something. They share in a real and universal animalness. But nominalists believed that actually the term animal, the whole category, is just a made-up category that humans use to organize the world. There is no quote-unquote real animalness. It's just a category we use in language. Realists would mock nominalists because they would just sit around and talk about language all day. But nominalists would make fun of realists, asking, how many legs does this universal animal you speak of have? Confused? Don't worry, I won't get much deeper than that. Well, Wycliffe was a hardcore realist. So much so, he actually believed that nominalism led to heresy. So in his early career, he spent a lot of time defending the church against what he saw as a destructive belief. In one of his writings, he says this, Thus, if nominalists were more concerned with the well-being of the commonwealth than with the prosperity of their kinsfolk, they would not press for their own people to be raised to wealth, office, prelacy, and other dignities. Beyond a doubt, intellectual and emotional error about universals, aka nominalism, is the cause of all the sin that reigns in the world. At least early on, Wycliffe blamed this philosophy for all the problems in the church. 
did I mention he hates nominalism? But it's interesting in this early quote because it shows Wycliffe's concern for the commoner. It's something that would grow as he continued his career. Wycliffe got his bachelor's in the arts and then his master's in 1361. At this time, there were only three subjects one could get a master's in, law, medicine, and theology. Wycliffe mastered in theology and then got his doctorate as well. After graduating with his doctorate, Wycliffe did not go straight into teaching, which even back then was the usual course. Instead, he entered the service of the crown. And while serving the English government, he would make some powerful friends. But at one point during his service, Wycliffe accompanied an English delegation sent to Bruges, and their mission was to negotiate a settlement between the English king and the pope. The meeting didn't go very well. Remember, during this time, the pope was greatly under the control of the French kings. This meeting very likely started Wycliffe's pretty low view of the pope. He saw the papacy as nothing more than a political tool used by the powerful. While working for the English government, Wycliffe began to shift his writings. His early writings had been mostly academic, but he began to write in a more popular way. He began to focus his effort on the corruption and the decay he saw in the church. So remember, at this time being a priest or a bishop would personally bring you money. And not just a salary either. You would directly receive the tithes from the people of your parish. Plus, the church would often have a lot of land. It would rent out that land, which also meant you got a lot of income from that. This meant that some bishops were very wealthy, and they could afford to live extravagant lives of luxury. Since the job was so lucrative, it often did not attract people for the purest of reasons. And often those people got their positions in pretty shady ways. So let's look at some of those shady ways. The first was nepotism, which just means hiring a family member to do the job. A bishop would appoint a lot of his friends or close relatives to office. The next was simony, which if you remember from earlier episodes, simply means buying your church office or a church office being given to the highest bidder. And the other two we haven't talked about yet, absenteeism and pluralism. Absenteeism was when a priest or a bishop never actually showed up for the job, but just collected the tithes and rents and lived somewhere else. Pluralism is related. It's when one man was a bishop or priest in multiple places and collected the money from all of them while ignoring one or all of them. It was not a good system. And this is the kind of thing that Wycliffe began to attack. He saw a system that had become totally corrupt. He published a book condemning all these things, and he also attacked indulgences. And indulgences you might know if you know about the Reformation, but if you don't know, these are things that people could buy as penance for their sins. It wasn't exactly buying forgiveness, per se, but it was a way to reduce your temporal punishment, or a way to show that you were extra sorry for your sin. But to the average person, it just meant buying your forgiveness. And so Wycliffe saw this as another way that the church was dishonestly siphoning money away from the people. Seeing all the corruption in the church, Wycliffe was also becoming convinced that Scripture had to be the ultimate authority by which everything else had to be measured. While he still had a lot of respect for Christian writings and writers before him, he saw all too clearly how fallible the papacy and the church hierarchy could be. Because of this, he believed that every Christian should be familiar with the Bible, and questioned any church doctrine that wasn't explicitly in the Bible. And that included the papacy itself. 
Not surprisingly, this did not make Wycliffe very popular with the Pope, or with anyone in a high church office. But Wycliffe really got in trouble when he had the radical idea that the church should give up all its land and the clergy should live in poverty. When the Pope at the time, Gregory XI, heard about this in 1377, he promptly condemned all of Wycliffe's ideas. And he even gave him a nice title, the Master of Errors. This could have been dangerous for Wycliffe, and these ideas would prove dangerous for other people. But thanks to Wycliffe's time in the government, he had some pretty powerful friends. John of Gaunt, the ruler of England at the time, really liked the idea of the church giving up all its property. It's not really a big surprise, because then the secular government would get control of it all. Plus, remember, the English don't really like the Pope very much anyways, since the Pope was pretty much under control of France. So while the Pope may have condemned Wycliffe's ideas, there wasn't a whole lot he could do about it right now. Wycliffe was also popular with secular rulers because he argued against the authority of the Pope period. He believed that the ruler of the land should be in charge of the church. He said this, England belongs to no Pope. The Pope is but a man subject to sin, but Christ is the Lord of Lords, and this kingdom is to be held directly and solely of Christ alone. Well, 150 years away, this is the exact kind of thing that King Henry VIII would put in practice himself. Now, this does not mean Wycliffe was universally loved in England. Some people hated him, especially those English priests and bishops who were making a lot of money in their positions, and they didn't want anything to change. Wycliffe was so controversial that at one point he was actually called to testify for his writings, and a brawl broke out in the court between those who liked him and those who didn't. But Wycliffe's prestige was never higher in 1378. That was the year that there were two popes. The papacy and the church hierarchy looked so messed up and corrupt, many couldn't help but thinking Wycliffe might have it right. Wycliffe continued to get more and more extreme in his writing. He believed that monasteries were corrupt and had become a leech on society and were not biblical at all. He thought they should all be straight up abolished. This, of course, did not make him very popular with the monks. He also dismissed purgatory, praying to the saints, and clerical celibacy, saying all these things were not biblical either. This continued to make Wycliffe the center of controversy. Even at his home University of Oxford, some loved him and some hated him. At one point, he was even imprisoned by the faculty. But he would not back down. Wycliffe said, I am ready to defend my convictions even unto death. I have followed the sacred scriptures and the holy doctors. But because of Wycliffe's many friends, he did not stay in prison for long. In 1381, Wycliffe did go a little too far, though, even for his supporters. He attacked the idea of transubstantiation. So as a review, transubstantiation is the official Roman Catholic doctrine of how the bread and the wine of Holy Communion change into Jesus' body and blood. The Western Church had made this official church doctrine in a council in 1215. The idea is a little complex, but it involves Aristotelian logic. To Wycliffe, it just seemed like nominalism, which, you will remember, he hated. So Wycliffe said the doctrine was man-made, erroneous, and unscriptural. Wycliffe himself wrote, The bread, while becoming by virtue of Christ's words the body of Christ, does not cease to be the bread. Now it should be noted, Wycliffe had no problem saying that communion truly was Jesus' body and blood, but how it became Jesus' body and blood was the problem. Wycliffe wanted to declare Holy Communion a mystery and leave it at that. 
This belief did not make him very popular, though, and many of his old allies could not go that far. In 1382, he was summoned to Oxford to explain himself, and he was not condemned or defrocked, but he could no longer teach or preach there anymore. So Wycliffe went into semi-retirement, back to the small town he had officially been the priest of. And at this point, I should note, while Wycliffe was very much against absenteeism, he was kind of guilty of it himself. Most of his career, he was officially a priest of that small town, but he rarely visited it. Now, while Wycliffe wrote about these reforming ideas, he's probably most famous for his view of Scripture. Remember, Wycliffe believed that the Bible was the one norm that you could measure everything else against. Because of this, he believed it was important for every Christian to know the Bible well. But the only Bible available at this time in Western Europe was in Latin. And at this point, not a whole lot of people could read at all, and even fewer could read in Latin. Well, Wycliffe wanted to change this, so he took it upon himself to translate the Bible into English. And this is perhaps his greatest legacy. Now, there's sometimes people who mistakenly believe that Wycliffe was the first to produce a vernacular translation of the Bible, and some believe that he is the first to translate the Bible into English. Well, neither of these is totally true. In the early church, the Bible was translated into all sorts of languages. And in fact, when the Bible was translated into Latin, Latin was the vernacular language. And even in the Middle Ages, it continued to be translated into all sorts of different languages. Remember, our friends Cyril and Methodius invented an alphabet to translate the Bible for the Slavs. That was in the 800s. And even as late as 1290, a Bible was translated into the Catalan language in Spain. So there have been many biblical translations before. And while Wycliffe was the first to attempt the whole Bible in English, many small parts of the Bible already had been. For instance, our friend the Venerable Bede, way back from episode 2, translated many different small parts of the Bible into English, just not the whole thing. So Wycliffe really was not trying to go into terribly new territory. He was continuing something the church had always done. But at the time, the papacy did not like it. Remember, in the 1300s, the papacy was trying to consolidate its power in a pretty chaotic time in Europe, and it did not like anything that might challenge its authority. So the papacy officially condemned this translation saying this of it. By this translation, the scriptures have become vulgar, and they are more available to laymen, and even to women who can read, than they are to learned scholars, who have high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine. Yikes. That's certainly not a great point for the papacy. And I do think it's a little odd that they worry that women might read the Bible, since... From the very beginning, women had been, including official female saints and doctors of the church. Plus, I do want to point out that just about every woman on this podcast, from Leoba in episode 3 to Christine in episode 13, could read Latin anyways. So, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But like I said, not a great point for the papacy. And of course, these protests did not stop Wycliffe or his friends. Wycliffe, along with another man named John Purvey and a few others, worked to translate the whole Bible. And it was not an easy task. It took them about 13 years. I do want to note, though, that while this is an impressive accomplishment, it actually wasn't all that great of a translation. Now, I'm not knocking it. I've never translated the whole Bible before. But 
I should note that it wasn't actually translated from the original languages of Greek and Hebrew, as most Bibles usually are. It was translated from Latin, and that means it was a translation of a translation. Plus, it was not a very imaginative translation of the Bible, and oftentimes it was pretty clumsy and clunky. Still, they were doing something that had never been done before, so we should give them props for that. Now, Wycliffe died only two years into the project, in 1384, so it was finished by John Purvoy and Nicholas of Hertford and a few others in 1395, and it was the first complete Bible translated into English ever. So back to John. John died on December 31st, 1384, after a stroke. But after his death, his ideas continued to be controversial. His influence slowly began to fade, though. His followers in England had become known as Lollards, which probably comes from the word mumblers. Possibly this is because they would mumble as they read the Bible in English. But as the papacy began to get a little more dignified, Wycliffe's ideas lost some of their influence. And in 1414, after a group of Lollards tried to revolt, they officially became an illegal group in England. And at the church at large, Wycliffe was posthumously declared a heretic. In 1415, at the Council of Constance, which we'll talk about more later, Wycliffe was officially condemned by the whole church, and all his writings were banned. And much later, in 1428, Wycliffe's body was actually dug up, burned, and then thrown into a river, which does seem a little spiteful. Now, this does not mean Wycliffe's writings were totally forgotten. The large number of surviving Wycliffe Bibles speak to how much his ideas spread in England, and his quest for reform would also be carried on by another. Not long after Wycliffe's death, a man named Jan Hus would discover his writings and then take them to heart. But we'll tell more about Jan's story next episode. So what can we say about John Wycliffe? Well, he certainly wasn't perfect, but he was truly committed to what he believed and even ready to die for those beliefs. And as we will see, many other people will die for similar beliefs. And I should say also, Wycliffe was not the first to call for reform in the church. Remember, he comes from a long line of people who have continued to do this, and people who still continue to do this. Without a doubt, Wycliffe certainly sowed seeds that would later turn into the Protestant Reformation. And Wycliffe's legacy continues to live on through the Wycliffe Bible Translators, a group formed in 1942 who's made it its goal make a translation of the Bible in every language that needs one, by 2025. So that's all I have on John Wycliffe. But I would like to mention something as we move forward in church history. As we continue our story, we're coming up to the split between Catholicism and Protestantism. We actually just blew right past the split between the Eastern and Western Church. So even though I'm personally Lutheran, I'm going to try to stay pretty ecumenical and objective and try to talk about faithful people from any tradition. After all, there certainly were sincere and insincere people on all sides. And we'll get to see some of that when we look at Jean Gerson and Jan Hus, the subjects of the next two episodes. And if you ever have a question or a concern about it, please just contact me. Which, shout out to listener Robert Barnhart for asking a great question. He asked, if you could recommend one church history book, what would it be? Well, for general church history... I would have to say the story of Christianity. 
by Justo Gonzalez. I actually quote him a little bit in the first episode, and it's definitely been a big inspiration and the source for a lot of my material. So check it out. Also, I have the audiobook, which I listen to pretty often. It's long, but it's very good. Now, if you have a question yourself, you can email me too at clericclawson at gmail.com or message me at my website, faithfulforebears.com. And also, don't forget to check out my Facebook page and give it a like. And don't forget to rate or review me on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Podcasts or whatever. Any reviews or ratings really help the podcast a lot. And also be on the lookout for some merch. It will be coming. And think about how good you'll look in a Faithful Forebears t-shirt. Oh yeah, and don't forget, tell a friend. I'm Eric Clausen, and thanks for listening.